Hi, welcome to my channel. My name is Lisa Allistway. And on this channel, I create a variety of inspirational and informational videos you can use and apply to your life. My guest today is attorney Scott Sheps, who is a partner in Jackson Walker, Walker's Wealth Planning, Probate and Trust section. For over 25 years, Scott has assisted clients in structuring their estates to ensure that their assets pass in a manner that meets the client's desires, reduces the potential for conflict, and minimizes gift, estate, and income taxes. Scott's clients include closely held business owners, corporate executives, real estate developers, private equity firm principals, physicians, other attorneys, professional athletes, and many others. I will be linking his contact information below. Welcome, Scott. Thank you so much, Lisa. I'm happy to be here. Great. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, so I went to, I grew up in Houston. I'm a native Houstonian. My kids are actually fifth generation Houstonians. Uh, pretty uncommon. Uh, went to U University of Texas undergrad, got my county degree, went straight to law school here in Houston, University of Houston. Uh, where you teach. And uh, after law school, I actually, I took a little bit different path than a lot of lawyers do. I actually went to work for Ernst & Young, which is a big accounting firm, in their personal financial counseling group. And what I was doing there is I did a lot of tax planning for high net worth individuals and closely held business owners. And so I really learned my way around the Internal Revenue Code and worked with a lot of lawyers and did a lot of estate planning for clients, but in a very different environment than what I would have been doing in a law firm. And about three or four years into that, I decided, you know, I really want to go to the law firm side. And so after being in Ernst Young for five and a half years, I jumped ship, went over to a law firm in, in Houston. Uh, it's a state planning boutique firm, meaning that pretty much all they do is estate planning or estate planning related work. Mm -hmm. And was there for 20 years and three and a half years ago, left that boutique firm and joined uh, Jackson Walker. And I've been here for three and a half years in the wealth planning group. And I created, I started the Houston uh, wealth planning group. Jackson Walker has a very established estate planning practice, but did not have anybody in Houston. So I started the group here and, and have added three people. So we now have four attorneys in our wealth planning group here in Houston. Oh, fantastic. So for the audience, can you tell us exactly what does estate planning and probate law include? Yeah, so from a very, very high level, uh, people, unfortunately, we all die. And so what I do is I help people before they die plan their affairs so that when they die, the assets that they own, that the, they pass in a, what I would call an efficient manner, meaning hopefully no conflict among the family members because people do fight about money all the time. So we like to help our clients plan their affairs ahead of time so that we can avoid conflict to the extent possible. And also, uh, a lot of what I do is tax related. So for my clients, we're trying to structure things so that when they die, their heirs, their family members, inherit their assets with paying, without paying more state tax than they really have to pay. Uh, now, that's the fun part of the job. The other part of the job, which is important also, is when the clients do die, because that happens, we then help the family administer the plan we put into place. And so... You know, if someone signs a will and hopefully they don't die for a long time, but when they do die, the family has to take the will, take the assets that the, fam that the person left behind and move those to the next beneficiaries. And that's, uh, we, we spend a lot of time with uh, clients helping them with that process as well. Fantastic. Um, 
So what happens if somebody doesn't have a will and they have a house and a car and possessions, but they have nothing written? Yeah, great question. And, and unfortunately, there are probably a majority of the people in the United States walking around without a will. It's very, very common. Uh, I was actually in an estate planning conference many years ago, and these are people that do estate planning work. And the, the speaker at the time said, how many of you actually have wills? And about a third of the people in the audience raised their hand. And that, these are people that work in the area. So unfortunately, it's a very common problem. Uh, Texas, so Texas and most states, I think are all probably similar. If you drive without a will, the law is going to basically create a will for you. And there in, in the Texas Estates Code, there is a, a list of people who will inherit your assets if you die without a will. And so you've lost the opportunity to, to say who's going to receive your assets and the, the law is going to dictate that for you. The other part, which is maybe the bigger problem in a lot of cases, is you haven't named an executor of your estate. And the executor is a person that when you die, steps into your shoes and effectively executes your will. That's why we call them an, an executor. And they follow the terms of the will. They file your final tax returns. They pay your bills. They, they deal with the IRS. They have to, they deal with the probate court. And ultimately their final job is to distribute the assets you left behind to your, your heirs, to your beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. Well, if you didn't sign a will, you haven't named an executor. And so now either the court's going to pick one for you. In that case, we call that person an administrator, not an executor. Or if all the family members happen to all agree and they're all on the same page, they can actually tell the court who they want to be the administrator. But if they can't agree and the court has to pick one, you can end up with a very um, much more burdensome and expensive process. So when you have a will, you name an executor, and if no one's fighting, we actually in Texas have something called independent administration, meaning once the court appoints the executor, the court stays out of it. It's a relatively simple process. It's mm -hmm. just handled by the executor. If people can agree, if you die without a will, now the court appoints an administrator, and a lot of times you end up with the, what's called a dependent administration, meaning you're depending on the court to manage the process. Everything the person does has to be approved by the court. So a lot of legal fees, a lot of, a lot of time and effort on getting things done. So not ideal. Now, there are, I always like to mention this, and I don't ever like to tell people this, but there are situations that it's better to die without a will. Hmm. Like yeah. when? Okay. When you have nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, that's right. If you don't have much, you can actually do, there's a, a process called a small estate affidavit. I don't deal with this very much. It's I know they increase the amount of the value, but it's something like seventy-five thousand to one hundred thousand dollars in value. If you have less than that and you die without a will, your heirs can then file something with the court, and the judge will sign an order saying, "Okay, the heirs now inherit all these assets, and you don't you don't have any probate process at all." Okay. Dangerous, dangerous approach to take, though. Mm -hmm. So going back to the court appointing an administrator when you don't have a will. Is that administrator come from a family member? Only if the family can agree. Uh, so yeah. there are there are a lot of times where that doesn't happen. So I don't do this type of work, but there are a lot of lawyers out there that are, we call them fiduciary litigators, litigators sort of mm -hmm. as a general term. And they spend all their time you know, fighting, dealing with family fights when someone dies or someone's incapacitated. Okay. And so... If that happens, then these the, when when that happens and people can't get along, the court then says, "Okay, we're going to pick this person, usually a lawyer, who's going to be the 
the administrator of the estate. And that, that administrator is effectively working for the court and, and going off and, and doing all the things that the executor would normally do if you had a will. Okay. You could, you could have an administrator as a family member, but the family is going to have to agree on it. Okay. And so um, also, if you don't have a will, I heard that like the government gets 40% or something like that. Okay. What? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of you know rumors out there about oh if you die without a will the yeah the, your estate's gonna cheat to the to the to state of Texas and they're gonna take all your assets. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. And okay. You can have that happen. It's it's almost impossible because uh, you you know who Howard uses. Have you ever heard of Howard? Oh Hughes? yeah, okay. I've seen his. Uh, he has a cemetery here in Houston. Right. Okay. He's so okay. he he died without a will. He was mm. very wealthy. Very wealthy yes. guy. Yes. Very. Um, yeah, he was different. He was a he was a unique individual. Mm-hmm. And I that well when he died, a lot of a lot of wills showed up. People just random people showed up with a will, the court, and all those wills got thrown out. They weren't legitimate wills because people were trying to inherit his estate. So ultimately, um, these the lawyers, the, the law firm here in Houston, it was Andrews and Kurt. I think they've changed their name now, but they handled. I mean, it was it went on for years and years and years. Um, he didn't have any close family members, but ultimately they desert, they determined, and this is what took so long, they determined who was most closely related to him. So I think it was probably like second and third cousins, you know, things like mm-hmm. that. So, so basically the way the law works, you go out the family tree and you find the most closely related people and that's who's going to inherit the estate. So very rarely does it actually, a steep, your, the assets actually go to the estate. That's almost unheard of. Now the 40%, mm-hmm. that's a tax concept. Okay. <laughs> uh, and that's federal tax. And so if somebody dies and if your estate is over a certain amount, then you, then that, that excess part is subject to a, what's called a, a for, an estate tax, which is a flat 40% rate. Okay. That's probably what I heard it as. Yeah. And, and so there's a lot of that in the press right now. Um, and I don't want to bore your listeners too much with tax talk, but just, you know, from a very high level, and, and right now, the, the, we have an exemption amount. And what, what that means is there's an amount that somebody can leave to their family members without being hit by an estate tax. Okay. Right now, that number is very high. It's $11.7 million per person. Okay. So if, you di- if you died and you had up to 11.7 or no more than that, then your heirs are not going to pay any estate tax on your estate. Mm. Okay. But if you have more than that, and there's a, it's a very small select part of society. Mm-hmm. Uh, we happen to represent a lot of those types of people because that's a lot of what we do. Once you get over that, so if, if you had somebody that had a, let's just say a $100 million estate, mm-hmm. the first $11.7 million that goes to their family tax-free, the rest of that, the 80, call it $88 million, gets hit by a 40% tax. Wow. And so their, their family writes a, a very large check to the IRS when they die. Oh, wow. So it's best to have a better plan in place where you spend that money, invest that money. So it's not like having to be passed on. Right. Yeah. So the perfect estate plan, you may have heard this joke before is the, the check to the coroner bounces, right? You, <laughs> you, you have a lot of fun. You, you go do spend money on whatever you like to do. And that's it. Yeah. Uh, that's not reality. Most people don't do that. And a lot of my clients think that it's going to be an issue, but then as they get older, they don't spend as much money. And then when you have a stock market like we've had, all of a sudden their net worth is extremely high and they die mm-hmm. and, and their family makes writes a big check. Oh, now, wow. what we do a lot of is we help our clients plan for that way ahead of time, meaning they start gifting assets away while they're alive. 
Mm-hmm. And without getting into a lot of details, because that will bore people a lot, but we set up trust and we have clients set, move assets into trust for their family members. And so mm-hmm. the growth occurs in the trust. And so that when they die, they have a lower estate value. There's still okay. a lot of restrictions on how much you could do with that. The other mm-hmm. important rule to understand, uh, and this is the re- one of the reasons that people don't want to get repeal the estate tax, is that anything you leave to charity, there's no tax on that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that, that one point, I don't know if you, not many people know about this unless you're in my world, but in 2010, there was no estate tax for one year. Hmm. And so Why is people, that? So when, when George Bush came into office, he, they passed a tax act in 2001. And the tax act basically repealed the estate tax, but it was a gradual process where the amount that was exempt, so that, that 11.7 million that we have now that's exempt, mm-hmm. he came into office, it was a million dollars. Oh, wow. And so he said, you know, his administration said, that's not fair. So it went up gradually. It went from one to one and a half, then to two, then to three and a half. And then eventually in 2010, there was no estate tax. And that's the year that Dan Duncan, I don't know if you've heard his name before. Mm-mm. He was a wealthy, he lived in Houston and he was the wealthiest person in the United States that died that year. Yeah, people estimate his estate was maybe $7 billion. So his family expected to write a check. Back then, the estate tax rate was 55%, not 40%. Oh, so wow. His, his family expected to write a $3.5 billion check to the government. They wrote a zero check to the government because he died in 2010. Wow. All the conspiracy theorists are coming out right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Yep, yep. And then, yeah, unfortunately, there were, I've heard stories, luckily, none of my clients, but there were stories of people who took their life at the end of 2010 because they knew. In 2011, that exemption was going to come back down mm-hmm. to a million. It ultimately changed to five. Under Obama and, and Biden, they increased it to five million. Uh, but there were some people that probably took their lives into the, the 2010 because they thought, "I'm only." You know, these are people that were probably very old and, and, mm-hmm. and ill, but well, I'm only going to live a couple more months. And mm-hmm. if I do, my family's going to lose millions of dollars. I'm just going to take my life. I mean, it was tragic. You know, it was, yeah. it was not, not not the type of decisions that tax law should be driving. Let's put it that way. Will we see that again another year where it's... A, well, that's no- funny you bring that up because there are proposals right now in the law. I mean, sorry, the proposals mm-hmm. from Congress mm-hmm. came out, just came out last week from the House Ways and Means Committee to reduce the exemption from 11.7 to basically half, 5.85, mm-hmm. effective January 1st of next year. Now, it's not quite as drastic because we're not going from unlimited amount tax-free to 1 million, but Mm -hmm. it is going to be, it could potentially be a drop. I personally don't think it's going to happen. A lot of people disagree with me. Mm. The way the law is written right now, that's going to happen anyway at the end of 2025. Wow. Okay. So when people come to you, they get a will. And then obviously the step is to give your will to the people that are going to be the, tell them you have to communicate. You're going to be the executor. This is, you know, my wishes. And I think sometimes, do you find a lot of the communication gets dropped in some of that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. A lot of clients of mine uh, are not so open with their family. Mm-hmm. They want to keep everything secret. And I highly encourage them, especially when the kids are older and when they get older, mm-hmm. to communicate with, the, with their children or, or whoever their heirs are mm-hmm. about where the will is, who, who's going to be in charge, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Additionally, which I didn't mention before, 
uh, as part of the estate planning, we also help people with incapacity. Mm-hmm. And so we do a, a financial power of attorney, a medical power of attorney, mm-hmm. maybe a living will. And we could talk about what that is. And, and, mm-hmm. and we, we prepare those documents as well. So if somebody becomes incapacitated, so they're still alive, but unable to make decisions for themselves, they've named somebody to take care of their financial matters, to make medical decisions for them. Mm-hmm. I think it's very, very important for the people they've named in those documents to know, hey, if something happens to, to Scott and he's incapacitated, I need to step up and, and take care, pay his bills for him, make medical mm-hmm. decisions. Mm-hmm. And if they don't know that and they don't have access to the documents, that can be a, mm-hmm. a problem. So I've heard stories where people come in and they change their will at the later stage of life and they don't tell the people behind them that they wrote them out of the will, for example. And so some people are left shocked um, thinking one thing's happening and wasn't updated. How often do you see that? Not too often. Uh, My general rule uh, is, and there's of course exceptions to this, but surprises are not great in estate planning. Mm -hmm. And with the situation you described is certainly a bad surprise. Yeah. And that is, I mentioned before there are, group of attorneys here in Houston, pretty big group that are fiduciary litigators. And mm-hmm. those sort of things happen when somebody changes the will at the last minute, mm-hmm. dies and somebody, you know, one of the heirs was taken out or received mm-hmm. a lesser amount. Mm-hmm. Usually when they find out about that, the first thing they do is call a fiduciary litigator and say, Hey, how can I contest mm-hmm. this? That's, that's kind of reminds me of the Anna Nicole Smith, you know, mm-hmm. that married right. a billionaire and she was his wife. And when he died, basically wrote the son out, I think. And so Anna Nicole got all the money and then it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And I can't remember what was the outcome of that. Yeah, I think she ended up not receiving anything. I know some people that were okay. involved in that case. And okay. uh, yeah, I don't think hmm. she ended up receiving anything. Really? Yeah, I think it all went to... The oldest son or something? I think so. I think it went to... Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, so it, that... it, it went on for years. I mean, it was... Yes, I remember that. For some reason, it sounded like she was winning there for a while because it went mm-hmm. all the way to the Supreme Court. But his argument was that he wasn't mentally all there. And so it shouldn't be uh, the will shouldn't be legal. Right. Because he was I believe he was in his 90s when he signed yeah. the will. And, yeah. you know, the, the way that you can contest a, will, a person can contest a will is you either show that there was you know, some sort of you know, fraud involved. So. Mm-hmm. He didn't really sign the will. That's kind of hard to do because in Texas, when you sign a will, you have to be in front of two witnesses who are disinterested or and a notary. Uh, you don't have to have it notarized, but that's usually the that's the way we typically do it if you're having a formal will done with a lawyer. Uh, so, assuming that there's no fraud involved in that situation, so now you're looking at did the person know what they were doing when they signed the will? Did they have mm-hmm. capacity? Mm-hmm. That's usually the, the easiest uh, avenue of attack for someone who's trying to contest a will. And certainly when someone's 90 something years old, and I don't know what the context was when he signed his will. And if he did it, and mm-hmm. two, of, two of Anna Nicole Smith's friends were the witnesses or something like that. I've seen that happen before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that doesn't look great when you go in, in front of the court. Uh, the other is undue influence. So you know, someone's pointing a gun at your head and makes you sign your will or is holding your hand and, and moving your hand for you, something like that. Yeah, people do crazy things when it comes to money. And, uh, and so so we, you know, and, and with our clients, what we try to do is minimize that risk. And mm-hmm. most of my clients come to my office. 
we have witnesses from our office that, that, that act as witnesses. I'm the notary or sometimes I'm the witness and we have another notary, but I have a long conversation with them before they sign the will. I make sure that there's no one in the room that could exert undue influence on them. Mm -hmm. uh, so we do as much as we can to protect against that. But ultimately, you know, you painted the picture. If, if someone's upset because they were cut out or, or they received less, it doesn't cost that much money to file a lawsuit in the United States. And so wills get contested quite often. Interesting. Okay. Very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so can we talk a little bit about um, wealth planning and some of the biggest mistakes you see people making with regards to that? Sure. Yeah. And, and we call ourselves wealth planners at, at our firm and we really are estate planners. It's just a, it's a marketing thing. Okay. <laughs> and, so basically yeah. apples and oranges, wealth, estate, same thing. It, it, well, in a sense. Yeah. I mean, historically attorneys that do what I do, we call ourselves estate planners, but we really do more than that because estate planning would really just be the will and and helping someone administer the estate. And we are trying to help our clients maximize the wealth that they pass to right, right. family members. And so that's where the tax planning is really, you know, an intricate or an important part of the of the plan. So uh wealth planning um involves trust. So People probably, you've probably heard of trust. A lot of people, you know, you've, oh yeah, I know about trust. Well, people don't really fully understand what trusts are until you actually deal with one. And a trust is really just a contract. And what, it, what it's a contract between a person that we call the grantor, or some people call them that person, the settlor, as a person that's creating the trust. Then you've got the trustee, who's the one that's going to manage the trust. The trust is really just a contract between the, the grantor and the trustee and the grantor saying, all right, trustee, I'm going to give you these assets and I want you to agree to manage them in this, in this way. And then you have this trust agreement that says, here's, here's how the trustee is going to manage this. A lot of what we do in wealth planning involves that, involves trust. And you hear a lot of horror stories about trust. Usually that's because there's a trustee who's gone rogue, mm. at least in the opinion of the, of the beneficiaries, because the third person that's part of the trust is the beneficiary. And that's the person that's going to benefit from the trust relationship. So a good example would be I create a trust. I say, okay, I want XYZ bank to be the trustee, or I want my sister to be the trustee and my kids are going to be the beneficiaries. So if that trustee does things that upset the beneficiaries, my, my children, my children can sue the trustee. Okay. The reason that we use trusts are really sort of threefold. Uh, one is to help with management of the assets. And this is where wealth planning is really part of this. So my, I might say, okay, I don't think my daughters are ready to manage these assets, but I want to give them, I want to get some value over to them and, and mm -hmm. have some income for them. But I don't want them to have the ability to go sell the assets and go buy Ferraris or you know, try take a trip around the world. I want these assets to be invested for the future. So I'm going to, the trustee is the one that's going to do that for them. Okay. That's one reason is management. The second reason is protection. So if I create an irrevocable trust for my daughters and I name somebody as a trustee, and then one of my daughters gets divorced or runs somebody over with a car or, or you know, does something that creates some sort of liability, those assets and the trust are protected from their those third party. Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah, so that's you know when, when we say wealth planning, we're we're talking about you know, 
planning to protect that wealth for the next generation. The third reason we use trust, which we talked about before, is, is for tax planning. Because mm-hmm. I'm getting those assets out of my name, putting them in this trust. Ultimately, my children are going to benefit from that. And the IRS is hopefully not going to receive a, a large chunk of that. Okay. So when you inherit um, money from your family, you have to be like 18 before you can actually have control of it, correct? That's right. So yeah. in, in Texas, I think pretty much all states, anyone under 18 is considered a minor. Mm-hmm. And so they can't technically own anything or you know, sign any legal contracts. And so that's why we use trust is to manage that. Now you can uh, create a, an account uh, we call the Uniform Transfer to Minors account or an UTMA. You mm-hmm. may have heard of that before where you can go to, if you want to give some money to someone who's under 21, actually, for an UTMA, you can go to a financial institution, open an account in their name, but it's an UTMA. So you name a custodian. So I could be, well, my daughters are already too old, but if my daughters are young, I could say, I'm going to create this UTMA for them, but I'm going to be the custodian on the account. So it's almost like a trust, but not really because it's just a financial account. When they turn 21, it's their money. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very cool. But so if you're ever in the position, like you just mentioned for your daughters, you can't touch it. You can't do anything with it. Correct. It's just right. sitting there and you're just overseeing it, ready to pass it on. Yeah. So the, the UTMA itself is very, very, very flexible. Mm-hmm. The big problems we have with UTMAs, uh, and I've had this happen quite a few times, is you set the UTMA up and you put money into the UTMA every year. There's a there's an amount that you can give away every year without creating any tax problems. And right now that's $15,000 a year to each person. So I could give $50,000 a year to 100 people if I wanted to, and there's no tax consequence to that. So I've had clients that they've put $15,000 a year into an UTMA for their child or grandchild every year, and maybe their spouse did too. Now the child is 20 years old, about to be 21. Mm -hmm. uh, The parent calls me and says, my child's in drug rehab. Mm -hmm. And there's half a million dollars sitting in their UTMA, and they're going to turn 21 in four months. What do I do? Mm -hmm. It's a big problem. And so mm-hmm. we have to deal with that. Uh, and so that's, I like to caution people about UTMAs. They are, they serve their purpose, but if you're going to put a lot of money into there, uh, it's, you have to be very careful because we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what the child's going to turn out to be like when they're, when they're 21. And if you've, if you've done something that's irrevocable, you can't take that money back. And so it, it, it's, it's, it can be a problem. And so mm-hmm. that's why we prefer trust that we can customize you know, to whatever the situation is. And we can we don't have to turn it over at 21. It's much more common with my clients to let their children or grandchildren have control at 30 or 35. Those are, yes. those are the most common ages we see now. Okay, very cool. Um, so let's talk a little bit about economic downturns. You know, we've had our share of recessions and depressions and inflation and all kinds of things happening. What kind of advice do you give your clients when there's economic downturns? Yeah, so that presents, uh, and of course, none of us want economic downturns, but it does present opportunities. Uh, so when you have an economic do- downturn and and the stock market's down, or people uh, people who have closely held businesses, the value of those businesses are down. It creates opportunity from a tax perspective. So remember, before we talked about the eleven point seven million dollar exemption that you can give away without taxes. That 
that 11.7 million applies when you die or if you make large gifts when you're alive. So you can use it when you're alive or you can use it when you die. And so during an economic downturn, and this was true at the very beginning of COVID, uh, there were some opportunities. Of course, since then, the market's just gone kind of bananas. And so everybody received you know, their value back plus a lot more. Uh, so those opportunities are no longer there, at least for now. But at the beginning of COVID, you saw you know, a huge uh, loss of value in the stock market and people's businesses. And, and still, to some extent, here in Texas, in the oil and gas industry, there's some depressed values. When that happens, uh, then a client could say, okay, well, I, I have a, a stock portfolio that was worth $5 million and now it's worth 2 or $3 million. I don't need that money. I have other money that, I, that I'm going to be able to use to support myself for the rest of my life. I don't want my children to have to pay too much estate tax on that. So I'm going to take that 2 or $3 million account. I'm going to move it into a trust for my kids today at that lower value. So if it's $3 million when I move it in there, I use up 3 million of my 11.7 that I have total that I can give away tax free. Mm-hmm. But now the 3 million's out of out of my name, out of my state. And so if that 3 million now comes back to 5 million, 6 million, 10 million, whatever it grows to, all that growth is out of my state. So there's no my kids do not have to pay a state tax on that. Mm-hmm. So that is the single biggest uh, yeah, benefit. Now, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it because there are some very complicated techniques we utilize in estate planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a very high level, that is the that's the that's the thing. It's, it's basically a leveraging technique. You're taking assets that are valued low today, mm-hmm. moving them into a structure that is out of your estate for your family, and all this growth is is occurring without any estate tax on it. You still pay, there's still income tax due. So I always like to make sure people understand that this is not a, there's this is there's no tax fraud involved in this. It's income taxes are still paid on the income, but that growth when somebody dies, there's no, that, that 40% tax that we talked about before is not paid on that growth. Okay, very interesting. Um, so this has been very helpful. Do you have anything else you'd like to add that's pertinent to this topic of general estate planning? Yeah, so yeah, a couple of things that probably are, are good to talk about since we mm-hmm. kind of glossed over them. One is, um, in addition to wills and tax planning and state administration, uh, what's one thing that's very important part of what we do with the state planning when you have clients who have younger children mm-hmm. is naming a guardian for them. Mm. Okay, so usually the first time people sign wills is is when they have a child. Mm-hmm. Um, or sometimes their parents make them do it. But, but if you have a child, minor child, you want to be able to name, if God forbid something happens to you and your spouse, um, you die, you want to be able to name ahead of time who's going to become the guardian, really the parental figure of that child. Mm-hmm. So you can do that through an appointment of guardian document. It's very simple. It's obviously a very difficult decision for a lot of people. And a lot of people just don't, there's, Probably most people, I'd say, don't have the perfect person because mm-hmm. it's difficult to, first of all, it's difficult to think about that. Like, yeah. you know, I'm God and now my child's still young and, and the parents, he, has, he or she has no more parents. Uh, don't, you know, most people don't like to think about that. I have, it's very common while I'll be sitting in my office with a couple and one of the two of them, when we start talking about that, you just start seeing tears running down mm-hmm. their face because it's, I mean, it's just something no one likes to think about. Right. But it's very important because if you don't do that, the court is going to decide who becomes the guardian. And 
the court may pick somebody that you would never want to be the guardian of your children. So very important point of guardian ahead of time. Um, secondly, and this is not as common, but uh, we also will sometimes prepare a document called an appointment of an agent for disposition of remains. Hmm. Uh, I like to call it just a burial power of attorney. So okay. <laughs> it's a document where you, you're doing two things there. One, you're saying, if I die, I want to be cremated or I want to be buried at, at, in this cemetery. You set your, and, and you have people that get very detailed on that. I want, I don't want to serve this. I want to have a, a party in my you know, memory and here's the music I want to play. You can get as detailed as you want on that. Secondly, you pick the person that's going to make sure your wishes are carried out. Mm-hmm. So most of the documents we do in estate planning, our clients sign them and, and no one else signs them. That's the one document where the person signs it and the person the, na- the person they're naming, we call that person an agent to carry out their wishes, signs mm-hmm. off, off on that as well because they need to know that if you die, they need to immediately make sure that, because yeah, let's say you wanted to be cremated and they, you know, the family doesn't know that and they bury you. And then the person comes forward a week later and says, wait a minute, he or she wanted to be cremated. It's too late. So that's the one document where we do have the, the agents sign off on that. But mm-hmm. that's a rare, that one we don't use as much, but mm-hmm. there are situations where you may have a family member who has certain religious beliefs that are different than yours, or there's something there. And so uh, we do mm-hmm. see that from time to time. You know, it's quite interesting, the number of people out there that don't have a will, don't have a power of attorney, don't have this guardianship identified. And it makes you really wonder why isn't this more baked into, into the cake of our society? Just like we all know we have to get a driver's license and you know insurance for our car. And it's just like, everybody knows that. And everybody does that. Why is this one still kind of hidden, I guess? Yeah, I really, I think it's because people don't like to face their mortality. Oh Yeah. It's, that's it, a big one. That's the big, you know, psychology Freudian. We're never going to die. And yeah. Cause it's, I have a lot of clients will, you know, we'll be in the middle of the discussion about estate planning. They'll just look at me like, how do you do this all day? <laughs> mm. Cause it is sort of, it's a morbid discussion a lot of times because we're talking about their death and you know, where the kids are going to go, where's their money going to go and who's going to be in charge. And, mm. and it's just a lot of people just don't want to think about it. And that is a, a, a common problem that I do see with estate planning is that once you do it, you check it off your list. Yeah. Put it in your file cabinet and you never pull it out again. Yeah. Well, your estate plan really should, should be changed as your life changes. So it's, it's a, you know, we all go through stages in our life, you know, whether it's, you know, you change your place you live or you have children or you get married or whatever family members die as those things happen, your estate plan needs to be visited and potentially updated when those things happen. Because if you name all these people to be executor, your power of attorney, et cetera, but they're, they're no longer available, they're not part of your life, whatever, mm-hmm. you really need to update those documents. So I can't tell you how many people, uh, we're extremely busy right now. And I think it's because of COVID. Because I think that so many people are stuck in their house or whatever. And they're thinking about, well, what happens if I get COVID and I die? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they pull it out. All of a sudden it's like, wow, I haven't looked at this in 25 years. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's a very common problem. Mm-hmm. 
we're very anti-death in our society and we need a wake up call. <laughs> yes. And uh, you know, one other thing I guess I should have mentioned before when you asked, you know, what are common problems? Another, a very common problem is uh, beneficiary designations on accounts. So mm -hmm. most of us in today's world have either 401k or 403b or an IRA or something like that. It's a retirement account. And those accounts have beneficiary designations on them. Mm -hmm. And most people, you know, they, when they get their job, they fill that out and then that's it. They don't ever think about it again. Well, the problem is if I name, let's say I, I name my favorite uh, charity as my beneficiary on my IRA, mm -hmm. my will says I give it all to my kids. The IRA is going to the charity. Mm. So it's very, very important for people to look at those beneficiary designations to make sure it's consistent with their estate plan mm -hmm. uh, because the beneficiary designation trumps the will. Okay. Same thing on life insurance policies. That's also a common, common problem. Same thing because life insurance policies, you have a beneficiary designation on there. It really should be checked to confirm that it's consistent with your desires. Okay. Very good. Um, so I have a question about like websites like LegalZoom, where you can just go online and go, here's my will, here's my probate. What do you think about those versus actually going to like somebody like you that's like, you can be face-to-face -face with someone. Are they just as good or is there pitfalls to doing the online stuff? Yeah. So I have lots of people that come to my office with wills that they did themselves on LegalZoom or something similar. And very rarely are they a hundred percent accurate. Sometimes, probably more often than not, they aren't even actually legally enforceable because, really? yeah, the, the problem is, so I think I mentioned this earlier, when you sign a will in Texas, and most states have similar rules, you have to have at least two witnesses that are not named in the will that witness your signature when you sign it, and they have to sign off on the, on the will. So many people don't do that right. They just think, oh, well, that's, yeah, they just ignore that part. They, they fill out the form on LegalZoom, mm -hmm. print it off, they sign it mm -hmm. and put it in a file somewhere. If they die, that, that will is not worth the piece of paper it's printed on because it wouldn't meet the standard for a will in Texas. So the language is not correct or is that, too if, general? If, if you don't follow the formalities of the execution, it's oh, not okay. a valid will. Yeah, because so you have to get it notarized. You can't just sign it and think you're done. You have to like, right, have to have a witness and a notary. So you have to have two witnesses. Mm -hmm. uh, the notary part, so when people sign wills, like they come to my office, and most people, they sign wills, what will end up happening is they'll sign the will twice. The witnesses will sign twice, and the notary will sign and put the notary stamp on one page. The page where the notary uh, signs it and notarizes it, that's actually a separate document. It's always attached to the will, but it's actually a separate document. And that makes the process easier when somebody dies. Mm -hmm. So to be a valid will, you only have to sign it in front of two witnesses and have the witnesses sign it. That's if it's printed on a computer. You can okay. also do what's called a holographic will where you, you do it all in your own handwriting. So no typing, you get out a piece of paper and you, you just write it all out. We, I'm familiar with cases where people did that on a napkin and the napkin mm -hmm. got admitted to probate as a will. <laughs> oh, wow. So that, that can be legal. If you're, you haven't seen a lawyer, you haven't gotten everything in line, but if you just like, I'm about to die. And so I want my car, my house to go to my, well, that'll work. It, it would work. Now, the problem with those is they're very easily contested and mm -hmm. you, you've got to find two people that are familiar with the person's handwriting and to come to court mm -hmm. and say, yes, I'm familiar with Scott's handwriting. Yeah. 
yeah, he, he did write that out. That, I, I know that's his handwriting. So it's not ideal, but yes, it is. It is valid. And uh, the other problem with the legal Zoom forms, I mean, the, the forms themselves, I've never actually seen, I've never gone to a computer and actually looked at the form, but it just seems like there's always something missing. And I don't know if it's because the forms aren't that good, which is probably not true. I'm sure they have had lawyers bless it. So it's probably mm -hmm. just the way that a lay person fills it out. They just, they don't mm -hmm. know any better. And so I like to equate it to someone preparing their own tax return. You can, you can go pre prepare your own tax return, not, not pay a CPA to do it. Right. TurboTax. But, right. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. but the good thing with a tax return is you do that, you file it, you pay your taxes. Three years later, the statute of limitations is run. The IRS can't come back and contest you on it unless you mm -hmm. fraud. With a, a legal Zoom will, you're never going to know if it was valid or not. And then you die and then your heirs are left to, to, to deal with the consequences. Mm, okay. So something to think about, you know, not taking this all on by yourself. So yeah, and there are lots, yeah, there are lots of different estate planners out there. So mm -hmm. I think that's probably why my firm called, we call ourselves wealth planners because mm -hmm. we operate in a certain part of society where they're higher net worth people that have tax considerations, but I have lots of friends who are also estate planners like me, but don't deal with the tax issues. They deal with simpler wills and, and things like that. And I, 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 whenever someone asks me, I just tell them, you know, go talk to, to this person, let them do the will for you. Yeah, it's, it's going to cost you a few dollars, but at least you have a peace of mind that you know it's done right. Yeah. What is the average of a will to get it made? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Um, it, average. It, yeah, it's, it's going to depend. <laughs> so, <laughs> give I can me a range. You, yeah, yeah, I'm going to give you a range. It's going to be very broad. And you're going to say, come on, Scott, narrow the range, <laughs> but I can't. Um, so with, with uh, simpler wills, if you went to a you know, friend of mine who's a solo practitioner, who knows what they're, he or she knows what they're doing, you're going to get a good will. You are probably, if, if you're a, let's say you're a single person and you have no kids and it's very simple, you're probably going to pay $500 to $750 uh, to get the will, the power of attorney, the medical power of attorney, all that done. Uh, if you have a spouse and children, but it's still simple, you may end up paying $1,000 to $1,500. Okay. If you have a larger estate and you need tax planning and all that, mm -hmm. now you're talking $5,000 or more to get your, your wills done. Okay. So the more basic, the cheaper, the more sophisticated, complicated, the more expensive. Makes sense. It does. Yeah. Cause you know, mm -hmm. it's what I tell people is when you come to me, if you have those needs, the tax planning needs, et cetera, you're going to get a little book from me. The will is going to look like a little book. It's going to tell, mm -hmm. it's, it's like a book, it tells a story. It says mm -hmm. chapter one, here's, here's what's going to happen when one of, when I die chapter yeah. two, here's what happens when my spouse dies chapter mm -hmm. three, here's what happens when my kids die. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. So it, 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 it's pretty big. And, and my clients look at me like, you want me to read all this? <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it, I do. I, I tell clients is understand the first eight to 10 pages because that's the meat of the document. Mm -hmm. And the rest of it's a lot of administrative stuff that we have to put in there. But yeah, it, it is an effort. And I think maybe that's why some people don't engage in estate planning. It's like, wow, that's a lot of effort. So I just don't want to do that. Yeah. 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 They, they put it off, put it off, put it off. And then when it's smack in your face because of illness or, you know, you're just older and anything can happen, but anything can happen right now. That's what people forget too. So it's 
probably one of the things you should probably look at today if you haven't looked at wills or power of attorneys and just kind of get your ducks in line because it's not only a gift for you, it's a gift for the people around you so that they will feel less stressed in those moments of trying to figure out what to do. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. You are, when you complete your estate planning, that's a gift to your, the family you leave behind. Mm-hmm. You are allowing them to, they can grieve after mm-hmm. you're gone mm-hmm. and they can worry a lot less about this process, the probate process they can have to deal with. Yes. Yes. Very good. Well, Scott, thank you so much for being on my channel today. It has been really insightful and I hope that somebody got some great information and uh, starts thinking about this and, you know, let's go of the, the death fear and just gets their, you know, their ducks in order. I hope so. I hope, I hope I've encouraged at least one person to, to get the wills executed. That, that would be great. Yes, Thanks for having me, Lisa. I appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. If you guys like this channel, please, please be sure to give it a thumbs up and don't forget to subscribe and hit the bell to be alerted to when the next video drops. Thanks for watching. Thanks, Scott. Thank you.